Hey there, it's Gary Parrish. It's Friday, May 18, 2018. Welcome back to the Island College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander here with me. He cuts his own yard regularly. Norlander, what's up with it? I'm doing okay, GP. Um, have spent the entire week being a stay-at-home dad, as I always am, but a solo stay-at-home dad. Uh, quite happy my wife uh, on her way back from San Diego, and I finally get help. You never have more appreciation for your wife than when you have to do the solo parenting duty. JP, I know you are very familiar with this, even though um, I can't possibly compare to you as you've got three to my one, but it's great to be back with you on this Friday. I can tell you, though, when we only had one, because um, for people who don't know, I have three children, all boys, but they are spread out. We, had, uh, we have a 15-year-old, a 4-year-old, and a 1-year-old. So we had one child when we were too young, to have a child, probably, and then we had two when we were too old to have children, probably. And I can remember when we just had one. And the first time Kelly went out of town and actually like left me with our oldest son, who was our only son at the time, he was probably like three or f- maybe like four or five, because I know that I had to take him to like kindergarten the next morning, uh, like that that whole week. So she was gone for like three days, and so I was in charge of a four-year-old five-year-old for three straight days and I thought I was going to lose my mind like just absolutely like overwhelmed like had a moment where I was like I can't do this anymore I have to call like my mother or somebody else's mother and now I think I'm better equipped because I'm with a four-year-old all the time and I'm with actually on Saturdays now since basketball season's over and my wife uh you know she owns a, a children's boutique she's at the store all day Saturday so it's me and all three boys all day on Saturday here at the house by ourselves and my 15 year old, he's no help whatsoever. You would think, well, at least you got the 15 year old to help you. No chance. He's got no help whatsoever. He's a good kid, but he's not helpful. Um, so it's me and the four year old and the one year old. And that can get exhausting, just overwhelming because somebody needs you all the time. And when you have the type of personality I have, which is I want to be reading what I want to read when I want to read it. I want to be watching what I want to watch when I want to watch it. I want to be doing what I want to do when I want to do it. It, 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 You suddenly find yourself in this situation where you can't do anything you want to do. It's everything the one-year-old wants to do or everything the four-year-old wants to do. Like, it's a weird deal. My point being this, you're exactly right. Being left alone with children, particularly young children, will give you an incredible appreciation for the parents, both men and women, who do that every day of their lives because it is exhausting. Like, honest to God, if you told me I could quit my job, but I would still make the exact same amount of money, but I would also be responsible for all of the children 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I'd say no way. (laughs) Absolutely not. I would actually rather go to work. Than, 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 than take care of children. How about this? How about the people who actually do this for a living? Like they, like I, like I love actually, like I'm, I'm talking about it. Like it's the worst thing in the world. It's not you. It's incredible time that you get to spend, um, with your boys and it's funny and it's worthwhile and, and it's fun. They're funny. It's worthwhile, all that stuff. But I can't imagine my career being me taking care of other people's babies all day long. Like that seems like the worst job in the world to me. Especially for you, that's yeah. The no shot, Parrish. No, I, I cannot even picture you having that kind of gig and having any sort of success with it. But yes, um, it's great to be with your children. I have been, I've been thrilled this weekend. In part, I think we're doing a podcast on Friday, frankly, because I've been just so overloaded. But it's been awesome to hang with my son like this. But when you get, and this is just one child, when it's like four or five straight days. It really adds up. And in fact, on Monday, I sent out a tweet. I said, listen, my, my son's like kind of barely eaten here. Am I doing the right thing? And actually, most people said that I did okay. I have an update for anyone that saw that tweet and voted yes. Uh, by Wednesday night, he was just not eating dinner, like just re- outright refused. And I was like, I'm not going to cave. I'm not going to only give you like cookies and all that stuff. So he just he went to, he went to bed hungry. I'm, I'm going to admit it right here on the podcast. And uh, my wife is incredible. So uh, we try and tag team this and do it together. But, man, oh, man, like when we're away, March Madness GP, 
just I bow to my wife with what she is able to do and how she is able to keep this all together. She's incredible. How about my wife? Well, I'm not only away from March Madness, I'm away January, February, and, and all of March and early April at, you know, basically half the week every week. And she is in charge of making sure our 15-year-old just does the things that 15-year-olds are supposed to do. Get up, do your homework, brush your teeth, go to school, don't develop a drug habit, blah, blah, blah. And then also has got the four-year-old and also has got the one-year-old and also running a children's boutique. Like that's impossible. And Super so yeah. when people – sometimes people will be like, man, I don't know how you – Get up every Monday morning, fly to New York, come, you know, then every you know, Thursday you're flying back home and it's bouncing back and forth and you're doing all these things. You know, you're writing and you're podcasting, your radio show and your TV, and it, it, it can get overwhelming. But it, I don't think it's as overwhelming as what she has to deal with every week while I'm gone. It is much easier for me to be in a television studio, you know, with catered meals and Swin Cash and John Rothstein than it is to be um, you know, trying to take care of three children run a household by yourself for half the week, every week. So yeah, uh, happy Mother's Day. Uh, happy late Mother's Day to uh, all the mothers out there. If we do not express our appreciation uh, verbally as often as we should, just know that we absolutely appreciate you because um, uh, it seems impossible sometimes what, what, they, uh, what they are asked to do. No, absolutely. All right, basketball-wise, um, and you know it's the offseason when we have these digressions, but I love them. Um, GP, biggest story of the week, probably the gambling stuff, but more intriguingly to me is what the ACC coaches have done here because it's it sparked a discussion again. Granted, maybe a little bit prematurely, but never underestimate how coaches will act in their own self-interest. Do you want to set this up for anyone that might have missed it? I think the, the NCAA tournament factor is the biggest one, but there are some other things that the annual ACC coaches meeting has birthed here. What are we looking at? So this is the time of the year where, um, where conferences have uh, league meetings, spring meetings, and they usually travel to a nice part of the country and, 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 and meet at a, at a unbelievable resort and try to actually like you know talk through issues and 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 you know perhaps solve some problems that they uh, that they have. Um, I happened to be at the Atlantic Ten meetings uh, the, earlier this week. I spoke with the men's basketball coaches and spoke with the athletic directors. It was at the Ritz Carlton in Naples, Florida, and it was uh, tremendous. And I can't thank them enough for for having me down because uh, I, I hope I was able to share some valuable information, but. Um, even more than that, I, I felt like I, I came out of there with um, a better understanding at, at, at the concerns outside of the, the, the Power Five level. And so while I was um, with the Atlantic 10 coaches, the ACC coaches were also meeting. And John Swafford, the commissioner, announced yesterday, told reporters on Thursday that they're going to make uh, several recommendations um, to, to bring about change to college basketball. One is that they want to widen the lane. And I'm for that, I guess, whatever. Another is that they want to move the three-point line back. And I'm for that, sure, I don't care. Uh, one is that they want to reset the shot clock to only 20 seconds after offensive rebounds. And that's fine with me. I have no real objection. Uh, but the big headline-grabbing recommendation is that they want to expand the NCAA tournament from 68 teams to 72 teams. Basically create a second first four. And the recommendation or the idea John Swafford had is like, yeah, we're going to keep that one in Dayton, but maybe do another one in the western part of the United States. So like still have it be Tuesday, Wednesday, but Tuesday, Wednesday in Dayton, Tuesday, Wednesday somewhere else. And then they'll play into the main bracket exactly as we have now once the tournament expanded from 64 to 68 teams. I'm completely against this. I explained why in a column, but before I get into that, I'll ask you. Is there any way this is a good idea? If this were put in front of Matt Norlander, would you vote yay or nay? Uh, it's nay all the way. In general, no matter what format you give me, no matter what tricks, bells, and whistles you put on it, I am anti any NCAA tournament being more than 64 teams. I don't like it at 68. I still think it's this weird wart on the tournament, and I fully understand that the first four has given uh, March Madness uh, an element of upset annually. 
literally every single year since the first four started, one of the teams that gets sent to Dayton wins at least two games and makes the, makes the second round. You've obviously seen VCU in the first year, the first four existed, made the made the final four, and so that has actually helped the NCAA's cause there in saying, you know, there are actually good teams here that can win in the tournament, and so when they get sent there, they're proving that they can actually do some damage. Obviously, we get back into the philosophical debate of what you do in the tournament doesn't validate or invalidate what you did in the regular season. To me, that's a separate issue overall. 64 is the absolute perfect number. I so badly wish one day someone will go back to that number. I just It's not going to happen. Uh, in absence of that, can we please put a cement ceiling and the weight of the world on top of 68 teams forever? I don't want any more teams. College basketball already deals with enough crap in the regular season in terms of people thinking it doesn't have nearly enough urgency. And so when you have headlines about going to 72, which is just – it's damn well, and it's a weird number as is, and any number beyond 68 is just going to cause more eye rolling and give more fodder to those who say college basketball is completely irrelevant from November until the first week of March. Don't want it whatsoever. We don't need more at-large teams in. I already don't like the fact that teams from small leagues have to play, and I understand that when you were a 16 and you're playing a 16, you get the units, you technically get an NCAA tournament win, so from a financial standpoint, you are getting money to help both your school and your conference. There's a benefit there, but I've also talked to coaches multiple over the years that say it does not feel like actually we're in the NCAA tournament in the true sense and spirit of the event when we play in Dayton on that Tuesday and Wednesday. I cannot be more emphatically against this idea. I wish it was 64. I begrudgingly accept 68 and I outright reject any sort of concept, particularly this is so rich, pun intended, come from the ACC, which has been the best and strongest league year over year over year over year, gets more teams in, the at-large picture. The last league that should be asking or pushing for this kind of thing is the ACCC, and yet at the same time, it's not shocking. Obviously, Beheim famously, I, he might have said 96, he might have said like 132 back in the day. Coaches want more teams in the field. They think it helps their job performance. I happen to believe that's a misguided philosophical notion because once you get more teams into the tournament, actually, I don't believe that if you get in, it'll simply save your job because athletic directors aren't completely stupid and if they see that you're still not performing up to snuff and you've got a 72-team field or an 84-team field or a 96-team field, you're still going to get fired if you're not performing up to uh, expectations and you're losing in the tournament. So that is... Basically, what I've been waiting to say for about 48 hours, I didn't really tweet too much about it. You took the column stuff. I think we're on the same page here. Your thoughts, Parrish? Yeah, we're on the same page. I, like you, prefer 64. It's just a nice, neat number, and it, it allows everybody to compete in the same bracket, every team that actually makes the NCAA tournament. But you're right. We're not going backwards. You know, like nothing ever, nothing ever gets smaller. And... So, you know, we're stuck at 68 for now, and I hope we stay stuck at 68 forever. Because here's the truth, and, and there's a lot of reasons I'm against this, but, but the one you touched on is, is, is perhaps the main one. Um, what the first four does is it takes four small conference slash low major automatic bid winners, and it puts them in what amounts to a play-in game. I know that the NCAA doesn't like that term, but that's what it is. You're trying to play into the main bracket. And so what that does is it ensures two programs, two teams, two coaches every year who, in a traditional sense, earned their way into the NCAA tournament, it, 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 it's going to prevent them from actually being in the main bracket. All they're going to get to do is go to Dayton or somewhere else and play a similar team. And I have talked to enough coaches of, 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 of auto bid uh, winners who go to the first four who say, you know what, given this reality, yeah, I'm fine with going to the first four because it gives us a chance to get, get a check. It gives us a realistic chance to get a win. That win counts as an NCAA tournament win on my resume, on my Wikipedia page. So sure, I'm fine with it. But – that's, they're only fine with it within the context of this is the system that's in place. They would rather the system not be in place because I don't care how many, and this is sort of what I wrote, times the uh, somebody connected to the selection committee or the NCAA or some university president or athletic director tries to tell you that playing in the first four is playing in the NCAA tournament. It's not. You know, Traditionally, uh, every small conference auto-bid winner – is going to be matched against a big boy in the NCAA tournament. And yeah, usually going to get smashed. But 
You've got that story forever. You've got that memory forever. You can tell your kids and your friends forever. I once went to the NCAA tournament and we played against Duke. And we got killed, but we played against Duke. We played against Kansas. We played against Kentucky. We played against North Carolina. Now it's just like we played against, you know, whomever, like some uh, some similar team, that uh, some team similar to you, and it doesn't resonate. And yet, each year, four of those teams are placed in the first four, and two get to go into the main bracket and do what I described. But the other two never get that experience. I think that sucks. And if you add a second first four, then the numbers double. It goes from four small conference auto bid winners in the first four to eight. And that means instead of just two every year, not getting to experience the actual NCAA tournament as we think about it in a traditional sense, that number now goes to four. I don't like that. That's why I'm against this. If you wanted to say, hey, we'll go to 72, but every auto bid winner is going to be in the main bracket at the jump and all of the first four, this is the way I think it ought to be anyway, all of the first four games are going to be at-large bids. They're going to be the the last at-large bids. Try, they're trying to fight their way into the main bracket. I could maybe, at, I, I don't know that I'd get behind that because I'd still rather be at 68 than 72, but I would find that um, more reasonable than shortchanging the small schools once again. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm against it for that reason. Um, I'm against it because it does lessen the regular season. It just does. You know, the bubble expands and that's not what we need. And I'm against it because it won't benefit the people who need this anyway. It's not going to benefit the middle Tennessees more often than not. It's not going to, I should say. Um, It's going to benefit the ninth place team in the ACC, the eighth place team in the Big 12, the eighth place team in the SEC. It's going to benefit mediocre power five schools more often than not. And I looked this up last night there in the past five seasons, we've had five first fours. And so there's been 20 at large teams placed into the first four and 12 of the 20 have come from power five. There's 32 men's basketball leagues. 12 have come from power five leagues and only eight have come from one of the other 27 leagues. And so it's reasonable to assume that that's the way it would be going forward as well. And so this wouldn't benefit benefit you know, so-called mid-major programs nearly as often as it would benefit mediocre power five schools. And I would submit this and then turn it back over to you as the, as the tournament is in this current form, there is never a year. And I mean, never a year where a good power five team is left out. Mediocre power five teams get in way more often than media than good power five teams get left out. If you're good and you're in a power conference, you're going to be in the NCAA tournament. I can't say that for you. If you're good and you're a mid-major, you might get left out. But if you're good and you're in the power five, you're in. And so all this does, and there's a reason why this is coming from the ACC as opposed to the Atlantic 10. All this does is create extra opportunities for mediocre teams in power five leagues. And I find it completely unnecessary. Like I wrote in the column. If you make me the head coach at Georgia Tech or Boston College or um, Iowa State, you know, or Clemson, I'd probably vote in favor of this. But me just being someone who covers and cares about the sport of college basketball, I don't need the tournament expanded. Your numbers even uh, make your case stronger if you include the Big East, which is, you know, a top three league over the past five years, because you had Marquette and Providence both get in uh, to Dayton uh, and shuttled through there last season, not this most recent one, but in 2017. Um, and, and just going back to, yeah, I mean, it, 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 there are many cases where smaller schools from, from smaller leagues have gotten pushed through to Dayton, uh, but that doesn't necessarily, to me, um, win me over on this concept whatsoever. For those that have seen this put forth by the ACC, um, my lingering thoughts from this, uh, one, I hope it, it just dies a quick death, but two, um, never forget that coaches want to expand the NCAA tournament. There are some who have, over the years, casually kind of said, you know, I kind of like it the way it is. It should be competitive. Um, and they, they're not stupid. Like, they understand the appeal of it, but they're also you know, thinking in their own self-interest, which I don't necessarily fault them for. But um, almost every single coach would take more NCAA tournament bids uh, if they were out there, which is understandable. But I do have some solid faith that the leadership 
at the NCAA level while it is working with the National Association of Basketball Coaches and then kind of through other channels, you know, official leagues and all that, they get what the coaches want to do here, but they still see the big picture. I trust Dan Gavitt um, not to take these sort of things, you know, uh, so seriously to the point where we get into real negotiations about if this should be done. Uh, I don't believe that it should. I don't believe that it will. But it, if you are a pessimist and you're looking for reasons why this might happen, uh, the reasons I would give you is um, with the exception of the golden era of the tournament, 85 to 2010 or whatever, um, when it was 64 slash 65, even like 85 to 2001, really. I mean, that was the six, true 64-team era. Um, and then you had the play-in game because the Mountain West was formed, and because of that, they didn't want to take away an at-large bid. Um, we are about hitting that clock again for expansion. The tournament over its history has been an organism that has expanded uh, <laughs> with habit and... Um, I, I don't put out that possibility, although I really hope it doesn't happen. Um, and then if there was any group of coaches that were to promote this and push it forth and propose it to give it the most momentum, I would say the ACC, which is stocked with the most Hall of Famers and the biggest, you know, some of the biggest names in the sport, this is how it starts. I don't think we're going to get there, but um, I would say it's important for the media and for the fans to let you know, the NCAA know through, you know, social media channels or however that, you know, if you're happy with 68, and by the way, as my closing thought here, Parrish, try not to ramble too much, but God, do I hate this idea. Um, you know, they they are aware of, of public sentiment. And, and I get the strong impression that most fans would are with us. They want it 64, they live with it at 68, and they don't like the ID. Even if you're like the fan of a team, uh, like let's just toss a team out of thin air. Let's, let's say you're a fan of, say, Seton Hall, which you know gets in here and there or whatever, and in theory, like going to 72 maybe helps a Seton Hall. But even if you're an average Seton Hall fan, you still enjoy the tournament for having uh, just taking a little more effort to get in. It's already fairly easy to get in as it is, and I feel like we are truly at a breaking point in terms of this bubble. Like, the the teams as it is right now just do not let four more teams in. Rant over. I'm done with it. I hope this thing dies on the vine. It might die this time, but I do think there will be expansion someday. And for the same reasons there's uh, every other decision in college athletics has ever made money. You know, you the, the more teams – you have the more games you have the more games you have the more inventory you have the more product you have to put on television the more money you make the more tickets you can sell um it'll be about making money and so i I don't know that they'll uh, this recommendation will be approved but eventually they're going to go to 72 or some other number and then eventually and i actually talked uh, about this with the atlantic 10 coaches uh down in naples eventually and I don't know if this will be in 10 years or 20 years, but eventually the Power Five League is going to do their own tournament. That's where, that's where, that, that is ultimately where the NCAA tournament is heading. And I don't even know that it will be called the NCAA tournament anymore. And I believe that they'll have an access, uh, they'll, they'll have an access point for, for, for programs outside of the Power Five. Well, when you say Power Five, Parish, you're eliminating the Big East. I mean, the the Big East is a better league than the SEC than the Pac-12, unquestionably. So, I don't think the Power Five is going to care. Okay, they're going to they're going to go to ESPN or CBS or Fox, and they're going to say, we can give you a, let's just say it's a, a, a 72 team tournament. We can give you a 72 team tournament, and we can give you. All, almost all of the biggest brands in college athletics. And um, how much is that worth to you? You know, if it's already a billion dollars or whatever it is, like, they, is it $2 billion? Is it $3 billion? It's going to be worth a lot of money. And suddenly you're chopping that, you know, the, the pieces of pie are, are way bigger for everybody because you're not having to share with, with so many others. And there'll still be an access this is at least the, the, the theory. There'll still be a way for Villanova and Butler and Georgetown and Memphis and anybody else outside of the power structure to play their way into that tournament. But it's going to be a, a, a tournament run by the Power Five, owned by the Power Five, where the Power Five is benefiting um, almost exclusively. And I, I again, I don't know if we get there, but 
I don't think it's an accident that, you know, the NCAA is not making money off of the college football playoff. Mm-hmm. And um, and eventually they're going to understand, you know, eventually the, the men who control, you know, the, the power five leagues are going to make, I think, the accurate, um, you know, reach reach the accurate conclusion that we can make more money if we do this on our own. Why do we need the NCAA to put on a tournament? Why can't we just put on a tournament ourselves? Eventually, I do think we'll get there, and I don't know how popular it'll be, but it'll be um, it'll be lucrative for 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 the schools in those leagues, undeniably. All right, I've, I'm not convinced, but let's uh, let's save that for another time because um, I don't want to lag on the podcast about that. But it is intriguing, and without a doubt, it's 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 definitely a possibility. Football's not basketball; different things in place. But years, decades down the road, obviously, that's a possibility. Um, let's move on to the NBA combine, not to discuss it in any sort of grand way, because, uh, that's an NBA thing and we're a college basketball podcast, but there was one development on Thursday that I do think is relevant to the national landscape of college basketball. And that's that Dante DiVincenzo, uh, did a bunch of great things and, um, you know, measured well, tested well, athletically, basically across the board, 42 inch vertical, measured six, three and a half inch shoes with a six, six wingspan. And there seems to be a growing uh, opinion that not only is he going to remain in the NBA draft, but he's going to be a, a first round pick in the NBA draft. And this obviously affects, um, you know, the reigning national champions, because I think it's reasonable to assume next season, he would be their best player if he returned to school. And I think it's also reasonable to assume that Unless he went for 31 in that championship game, he's probably not even doing this. And um, so, like, his performance on that Monday night in April to lead Villanova to its second national title in a three-year span um, is possibly the reason Villanova won the national championship. But it also is going to come with a cost because it does look like now they're losing uh, Dante DiVincenzo. I think that is where we are headed. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think he has played his last game and quite the memorable one for the Villanova Wildcats. Uh, what he has displayed. Here's my, here's my take on the combine. Um, I don't I don't know how truly uh, valuable, necessary, whatever terms you want to say. It does it does have some value um, and helps these teams a lot. Um, in watching how it's played out over the years, I find in most instances when it ends and you see the players that, quote, won the combine, if you really go back and see uh, the course of their NBA career or where they were drafted, um, that is an incremental victory. But occasionally, uh, as was the case with Donovan Mitchell last year and could very well be the case immediately so with Don DiVincenzo, uh, there is a, a player that can really truly uh, cement their stock and status in a certain way, one way or the other. DiVincenzo seems to be that. He had the highest, and again, some people just don't, some people totally, especially in football, they discount a lot of this combine stuff because, well, can you can you play the damn game? And you, By the way, you have all this game tape on you. What does this stuff all really mean? And we'll say this. Uh, DiVincenzo had the highest standing vertical leap, 34 and a half inches. He beat out uh, Trevon Duvall. Surprisingly to me, Gary Trent was third, 33 and a half. Josh Okoji from Georgia Tech, who, by the way, also is doing himself a lot of help there, tied with Zaire Smith. And then the max vertical leap, DiVincenzo and Okoji both at 42 inches. That's when you get the running head start as opposed to standing straight up. Um, they did a great job there overall. So, yeah, DiVincenzo, I think he is gone. Um, I think that does have real impact on Villanova winning a third national title in four years, let alone perish, how hard it is to do that. I think they need Spellman to return uh, in order for me to seriously consider them to do that. But I think he is gone and really comes about in one of the more surprising, you know, turnabouts of, of NCAA stardom where he was a Comet. If this winds up being what happens, uh, he was truly a Comet. Like, he occasionally had some good moments in the season, and if you are a Villanova fan or a devoted college basketball fan, which most people listening to this podcast are, and we thank you so much for it, particularly listening to us in the middle of May, then yes, you knew the big ragu. You knew Dante DiVincenzo. But from a mainstream perspective, DiVincenzo was a bit player, another guy on a really talented Villanova team who just arrived in the national championship game, had the moment of his life, and here we are. It looks like he's gonna and has to be taken in the first round if that's the case. Even if he came back and dominated, um, 
you want to take a chance and say, okay, we're going to take him, you know, 22nd, 23rd. Hell, perish. Maybe we get to draft night. DiVincenzo goes like 15th. Like, we don't know how high this could go, but I think after what he's done and what he's proven athletically and how good he was, if you really look at his numbers at Villanova, I think he's a lot to be a first-round pick, and I do not think he's returning. Okay. So if they lose DiVincenzo and they also lose Amari Spellman, what are you doing with Villanova in the top 25 and one? Right now I have him at third, at three. But that's based on DiVincenzo back, Spellman gone. If we're now agreeing that it looks like DiVincenzo's gone, and, and I still think Spellman's probably more likely than not to leave as well, how far do you drop Villanova? If at all, do you drop him for sure? I definitely drop him for sure, Parrish. Um, if it was me, and I don't have your top 25 and one up in front of me, I'll tell you what it is. It's okay. Kansas, one. All right, they're behind him. I'll let, give me the teams, and I'll tell you that if I'll put them behind him. So, yes, I, I put them behind them. Okay, Kansas one, Duke two, then yeah. I had Villanova. So right below D- Villanova at number four is Tennessee. Good God, you've got the Volunteers fourth. Um, but they got a lot coming back. Everybody from SEC championship Parish. team. Oh, my gosh. Um, I, <laughs> I would put Tennessee ahead of Villanova if Spellman and DiVincenzo are gone. So, yeah. At five, I've got Kentucky. And that is based on Quade Green coming back, P.J. Washington coming back, and Ashton Hagen's reclassifying and enrolling. Uh, I can't believe I Wow. All of which I think is... is I would to- put Kentucky ahead of Villanova in that situation, but it's very slim. At six, got Gonzaga. See, I think Gonzaga's going to be better than Kentucky. Um, so As I, I'm looking at this, I'm, I'm going, do I have Gonzaga too low? So I would put Villanova behind Gonzaga. Seven, Virginia. See, Parrish, Virginia was a better team than Villanova in the regular season last year. That sure. is a fact. The Cavaliers were better than Villanova. Who does Virginia lose? Actually, I'm not sure. Virginia. I know Virginia was the number one overall seed, but some of Villanova not being the number one overall injuries. seed, was, yeah, was rooted in injuries. Fair, but it, uh, you guys still got to account for it. So I understand what you're saying. Uh, yeah, no, I think Virginia had a big, better regular season than Villanova. I think that's true. Clearly, I think Villanova might have been the better team all year long. It's just that you know they, you know they they were dealing with their, Phil Booth got hurt. They were dealing with injuries, and that's when they when when they were injured is when they took their losses that ultimately cost them the number one overall seed. Otherwise, I do believe they would have been Biggie's champs and the number one overall seed. Villanova was undeniably more talented. I think Virginia was the better team up until March 10th or whatever. Um, who does Virginia lose? Um, let me pull it up. They are losing um, Nigel Johnson, mm-hmm. Hall. But Hunter's back. Hunter, um, yes. Yes, definitely back. Um, uh, Isaiah Wilkins. They don't lose too much. They don't. Uh, Villanova does have a good class coming in. Okay, I'm like 50-50. Who do you have after Virginia? It is Nevada, but it's based on the Martin Twins coming back. And I, I, I think that's probably – I don't know. That's up in the air. Yeah, I would probably – that's where my cutoff line is with Villanova. Right. And they still got a – that's amazing. I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here because even with losing both those guys, I would consider Villanova a title contender going into the season. When I look at the teams you have around them in the top ten, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think they still got a shot to go to another Final Four to maybe even win another national championship no matter what happens. But obviously it would be huge at this point. I think if you're Jay Wright, first off, you just wish your players well and hope that they do whatever's best for them. But if you could tell Jay right now – I. There's no way you can ha- – will you take this deal? No way you can get both back, but you can have one back for sure. I think he'd say, yeah, I'll take it. Undoubtedly. 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 Yeah, and good on DiVincenzo. Um, Parrish, can I throw you a couple – just a couple quick questions about Combine and some prospects? Of course. Okay. Before I do that, um, I will just quickly inform listeners, if you're curious about who tested best – 
Here, here it is real quick. Best and worst. Lane agility, Grayson Allen, better than anyone else. Worst, Yudoka Azabuki. The shuttle run, how about Kevin Herter? I greatly underestimated just how athletic he was. He is doing himself some solid stuff here as well. He won out Azabuki, slowest in shuttle run. Three-quarter court sprint, Josh Okoji was fastest. Jonte Porter was the slowest. And as an aside, Porter had the worst body fat of anyone at the Combine. Shea Gilgis-Alexander had the best body fat percentage of anyone at the Combine. I already talked to you about standing in max vertical leaps with a DiVincenzo. Um, biggest hands, Isaac Haas and Jaron Jackson, both at 10 inches. Smallest, uh, Jalen Barford and Jalen Hands. Coincidentally, Landry Sham, Trey Young, all measured at Eight inches, hand length that is, width. Mo Wagner's got the biggest hands, width-wise, Jalen Hands as as the smallest. And then height with shoes, since these dudes play in shoes, to no shock, obviously, Isaac Haas. And then, as many people heard, Mohamed Bamba's 7'10 wingspan was a combine record. I can't impress upon people just how long Bamba is in person. It's incredible. Haas, by the way, weighed 303 pounds. Trey Young, 177.8, was the lightest of any of the prospects at the Combine. Here's my two things for you, though. I've been fascinated with the coverage of the Combine and the stuff over the past week and a half. I've got two players I want to talk about. I want to talk about Marvin Bagley III, and I want to talk about Michael Porter Jr. It's weird to me that Marvin Bagley, rightfully so, was discussed as a favorite uh, someone on level playing field with DeAndre Ayton and Luka Doncic and anyone else for the number one overall pick until basically Duke lost in the NCAA tournament, so far as I can tell. Now, as a quick aside, DeAndre Ayton has been a beast, and I would take him number one. And if I had a, a top draft list, he would be my number one. I was very in on DeAndre Ayton in the season as I was doing the freshman watch and kind of tracking both these guys. I had them neck and neck close, but I did have Ayton just a bit ahead of Bagley for the final month of the season. But that being said, it's weird to me. Like, yeah, there's this big three of Ayton, Doncic, and Bagley the third, but no one is talking about Bagley the third being a first round, uh, number one overall pick anymore. To me, Paris, that's weird. And then the other thing with Porter is uh, there was a time when he was absolutely in that number one pick conversation, and he's not there anymore, nor do I think he should be because I think it's okay that he's bumped down given the concerns with his back and, frankly, the lack of overall film. But I am fascinated with Porter because I do think that his spectrum is so wide because I granted he was coming off of injury. He did not do anything for me, frankly, when he came back and played in the tournament uh, in the postseason for Missouri. But at his best, I've seen him look really, really good. So I think he is such a tough prospect to evaluate. I could see a situation where he works out well, and then we get a top four, so to speak, and he's right there with the other three guys that I mentioned. But I could also see a situation where if he does go f- you know, fourth overall, does Memphis have the fourth pick, Parrish? Yes. Okay. If he goes fourth overall, I can... This is a lot of based on him not playing most of the season than what I saw him do at the college level, and he could grow out of that. But if you told me that Michael Porter Jr. was just a total guy off the bench six years into his career, and he's been fine, he's in the league, but is nothing like what he once was, it would not shock me. So I just wanted to address both of those guys. I know you've got opinions on both of them, but in particular, Marvin Bagley III, because for a long time you had him number one on your mock drafts. What do you make of all this... Aiton or Doncic, only those two, and Bagley being taken out of the conversation. I don't agree with it. Um, you know, I, as you can imagine, we've had a lot of these conversations on my radio show because the Grizzlies do have the fourth overall pick. And before they got the fourth pick, they had the second-best lottery odds, which gave them an opportunity to pick first or second or third. So we've, we've, we've discussed all these players. Here's what I believe. I, I understand why most people believe DeAndre Ayton is the top prospect in this draft. He looks different. You know, he's taller, he's bigger, longer wingspan. He looks, I mean, he, his body is amazing. He's built differently than than most basketball players. Um, as I've said before, the, the among the most remarkable things about him is that even on television, when you were watching an Arizona game, he just looks different than everybody else. So I have a high opinion of him, but I don't understand why some think it's crazy to put Marvin Bagley in the same conversation with him, because here's the truth. Bagley and Aiton have been playing in the same circles forever, and 
you know, by and large, Bagley has always been considered the better prospect. Not by everybody, but but I think by most. You know, Bagley's always been considered the best prospect his age. When he was 15, it was Marvin Bagley, number one. 16, Marvin Bagley, number one. 17, Marvin Bagley, number one. 18, Marvin Bagley, number one. Reclassifies, goes to Duke. All ACC Player of the Year. Uh, first team All-American. And, and DeAndre Ayton was these things as well in the Pac-12. Player of the Year, first team All-American. And they had similar stats. But Bagley shot it better from the perimeter, even though people act like he he's not equipped to do that. He shot a higher percentage from three-point range than DeAndre Ayton. The thing with Ayton is the thing people love about Ayton, besides the natural physical tools, is that um, he, he clearly has a position. You know exactly what he's going to be. Where Bagley is, is, is not built like a traditional center, although neither is Draymond Green, and he's about to win a world championship playing center. Um, and he's not really a natural stretch for, although again, he shot a higher percentage from three point range, uh, than, than Deandre Ayton, a respectable percentage from three point range. And there's plenty of reason to believe he will improve on that going forward. But like you tell me, you've got a guy who's always been considered the best at his age and he's an incredible athlete. One of the best second jumpers I can remember. And he's got a high motor. I just choose to believe the defensive stuff, and that's where a lot of people have concerns, will we'll work itself out. He may never be all NBA defense, but he, he, there's no physical limitations to what he can be defensively. His instincts might be poor, but I think more than anything, his problems at Duke were, you know, he had never been you know, he never learned how to play proper defense because he never had to. He's always more athletic, a better jumper. He could be in bad position and still recover because he's different than everybody else. And then suddenly you get the Duke and it's time to play. And you've got three other freshmen in the starting lineup with you. And, oh, and, and by the way, Wendell Carter's not great either in that end of the court. And so Kay just went to zone. And I think that was smart. But I'm not convinced Marvin Bagley's a disaster on the defensive end of the court forever, the way some are. Long story, not so long. I would have him in that conversation for the number one overall pick. And if I were running the franchise that was picking first, I think I would pick Marvin Bagley first. Yeah, I would go Aiton, but the margins aren't large. And I just don't get why or how this seemingly happened in the span of a week. It's just one or the other. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. In terms of Porter, and Memphis mm-hmm. is in that four spot, so you figure it is going to be right now Aiton to the Suns, Doncic to the Kings, which, by the way, is like the perfect storm of like this amazing Euro, and then he goes to Sacramento and he disappears for six years. Like <laughs> I can already see that happening. And then uh, Bagley to the Hawks. Then the Grizzlies, obviously your local team, have um, have their choice. Do you go Porter there right now if his medical stuff comes back, or do you have some of the same hesitations that I do in that he simply just looked a little awkward and obviously still breaking back into who he was when he played in the postseason? I, right now, my mock draft have the Grizzlies if – because here, here's the way the draft's going to be. If you're picking fourth, and that's what we're, we're discussing from that perspective, when you're picking fourth, um, I think it's there's no chance Aiton's available at four, and there's no chance Doncic, Doncic is available at four. I do think there's a chance Bagley's available at four mm-hmm. because I could see Atlanta doing any number of things, including taking Jaron Jackson, who a lot of NBA people are in love with. So I guess I would break it down this way. Doncic is gone. Aiton is gone. If the Hawks were to take Jaron Jackson, I would take Marvin Bagley if I were the Grizzlies at four. If the Hawks, on the other hand, do what most expect them to do and take Marvin Bagley, now I'm looking at a group of players that includes Jaron Jackson, Mohamed Bamba, Trey Young, Colin Sexton, Wendell Carter, Mikel Bridges, and yes, Michael Porter Jr. And the point I've made in my mock draft and also on radio is that if my doctors told me there are no issues with Michael Porter. In other words, yes, he did have back surgery, but we have looked at the medicals and we feel comfortable telling you that you are at no long-term risk drafting Michael Porter Jr. than you would be drafting basically anybody else. I would take Michael Porter Jr. Because how about this? 
if I would have told any NBA franchise, any of the 30, a year ago, a year ago at this time, next year, you're picking fourth, and I can promise you, you get Michael Porter Jr., would you do it? Everyone would say yes. Every single one. Because this time last year, a lot of people had Michael Porter Jr. as the number one pick in the 2018 NBA draft. Now, keep in mind, this time last year was also before Marvin Bagley Mm -hmm. reclassified. But the point remains, nobody had him outside of the top two or three. Nobody. And now you could get him at four? If the medicals check out, I would take him. Because I don't know if you saw the quote from him last night. He was at the combine. And Michael Porter Jr. said this, quote, I played against all these guys. They're all great players. But I'm the best player in this draft. And I just can't wait to show what I'm capable of. And that might sound outlandish, given that he only played, you know, three games in in, in his one season of college basketball. But you and I watched him two summers ago and the summer before that as well. And he was awesome. And he looked like exactly what you want a combo forward in the NBA to look like going forward. You know, he can be that true, aggressive, score at all levels, small forward, or be a a small ball four, stretch four, whatever you want him to be. Like if somebody would have told you a year ago, in six years, Michael Porter Jr. is going to win a scoring title in the NBA. That's not a crazy thing. And if you can get him at four, if the doctors sign off on it, and Aiton, Doncic, and Bagley are off the board, my opinion is that that is what the Grizzlies ought to do. Okay. It'll be interesting. And I think that we will have – we're going to talk some more just draft prospect stuff. Not go crazy. It is a college basketball podcast, but this is obviously the one area where the two sports marry. Um, We've got about a month until the draft, and we're going to get more – stories, rumors. I won't get too much. I'm not big on like the, oh, this guy's trending this way, rumor stuff. There's obviously a lot of uh, misdirection in that, and I don't like to get caught up in that stuff. But we'll have opportunities just to talk a few more things here. Don't want to soak it up all on this podcast. But I just wanted to get your thoughts on that particular uh, subject in the immediacy and amid the combine happening right now because the Bagley stuff is a bit baffling to me. And again, I say that as someone who thinks Aiton is a slightly better prospect and was a slightly better freshman last year um, than Bagley overall. And I mean barely. Um, I just don't get how he has suddenly been booted out of that conversation. But then again, maybe two weeks from now, suddenly he's back in it and this is just how this whole damn news cycle works. Nothing would shock me at that point. Um. Before we get out of here, let me ask you about one more prospect because this is another prospect we're discussing a lot uh, on my radio show, Jaron Jackson. There are some NBA people who love him, like think that he could end up being the best player from this draft. I don't know that there's any chance he would go number one, but I do think in in a certain I, – I do think there's a chance he could go two, particularly if Doncic makes it known to the Kings that he might just stay in Europe if they take him. I could see Sacramento then – saying, well, let's just go with Jaron Jackson because at least we know we're going to get Jaron Jackson immediately. Um, the, 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 the physical gifts are undeniable. I mean, he's, he's long, tall, can shoot well from the perimeter, has great defensive instincts, um, projects as a great defensive player, and he's got all the tools necessary to be a really good offensive player. I, I understand it. I also understand that he didn't play, but he only played 21 minutes a game at Michigan State. And he had some really bad games. In the NCAA tournament against Syracuse, he played 15 minutes. He was 0-4 from the field, two points. Had a line against Stony Brook that was just miserable. Um, There's another game, I think, in the Big Ten tournament where he was just miserable. Like in a year where we watched so many freshmen not only be great prospects but players – Bagley was awesome. Aiton was awesome. Trey Young was awesome. Colin Sexton was awesome. Wendell Carter was awesome. Uh, Jaron Jackson wasn't good. And so we're, you know, it's the classic conversation about is he, you know, is he a great player? Is he just a great prospect who's never going to become a great player? Where are you at on Jaron Jackson? I would love to disagree with you, Parrish, because this podcast gets fun when we disagree with each other. We're on the same page. Um, You mentioned all those guys. All those guys were in my frosh watch, top 10 freshmen in the country, week over week. Jaron Jackson did not did not crack that top 10. His per 40 numbers are nice and he could be efficient and he you know what he's a really good instinctual shot blocker. He is more prospect than he is player and I you know I get no joy out of like taking down these amazingly talented, athletically gifted 
DNA handed down from the gods kind of uh, kids at 18, 19 years old. Jaron Jackson, by the way, seems like an awesome player. But you cannot deny, if you look at the history of the freaking draft, every single year take the top 10 picks, and at least half of them don't wind up having careers that would seem to validate what we think top 10 picks should be. It's just an inevitability. Jaron Jackson is the player in the top 10 I think is most likely not to live up to his billing in accordance of where he is taken. I think he's a lock to go in the top five overall. All those other freshmen got on the floor, produced, played a lot of minutes. Jaron Jackson, a year after Michigan State, had a ton of freshmen getting a lot of minutes. He just wasn't on the floor much. I watched him a ton. He had his moments, but he was also really inconsistent. I... Listen, uh, Parrish, we are not professional scouts. We don't do this for a living. There are players almost every year that I think, I don't know how this guy is seen as like a top 18, 20 prospect. And then I look up four years later and it's like, no, actually those people were very much right. But occasionally there are guys that I'm 100% on. And I just think that Jaron Jackson, he's going to make it in the league for 12 years because he just is when you're built like that. He's not going to flame out. But I think he's going to be a career like – Nine points, eight rebounds, two and a half blocks a game guy, which is good, but it's not the second overall pick good. That's just my projection on him overall. I'm not as taken with him. And 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 in that, I undeniably and without reservation acknowledge just how physically impressive, like he's got the tools. If you can chip away at that and really turn him into an amazing player, yeah, no doubt about it, but I just don't think he's going to be that kind of guy. Yeah, I, you and I are in agreement here. I... I, I you know, and I never speak in absolutes about this. Like you, you're never going to hear me say, oh, this guy's going to suck and this guy's going to be great. I mean, there are times where you can say this guy's going to be great, like LeBron James, Anthony Davis. It's just crystal clear sometimes with some players. But you mentioned we're not professional, um, you know, talent evaluators. That's obviously true. But even the professionals get it wrong all the time. Like, the, you know, Donovan Mitchell went 13th in last year's draft. That means at least 11 and maybe 12 franchises got it completely wrong. Because if you did that draft, less than a year later, if you redid that draft, the top two players picked are Donovan Mitchell, Jason Tatum, in some order. Mm-hmm. So like even the, the people who do do this for a living, who are professional talent evaluators, they get it wrong every time. So the only thing I push back on is when folks speak in absolutes, like – when I say, hey, I, w- I would consider taking Marvin Bagley number one. When, people, when There's somebody out there who will go, you're crazy. You couldn't take Marvin Bagley number one. What do you know? Did you have Donovan Mitchell going first or second last year? Then you didn't know what you were talking about. Did you have Jason Tatum going first or second last year? Danny Ainge clearly did, but I'm not sure how many other people did. And so um, I, 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 that's where I'm at on Jaron Jackson. I understand what people are enamored with. I can easily imagine him being an NBA star, but I'm not predicting it. I can imagine it, and I don't rule it out, but I'm not uh, predicting it. But like, uh, like I said, I've, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable being wrong about this because everybody is wrong about these things all the time. You want to call it a podcast? Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry, MF and Teagle. He's the legend. And please go subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. Rated favorably. Five stars, nice comments. That's all we ever ask from you. Five stars and nice comments. And we will talk to you again next week. Till then, take care. <laughs>